good to be with you today. Your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 19. We pick up where we left off last time, the story of the rich young fool. Matthew simply calls him a man, or more specifically, technically in the Greek, it's just the word one in the masculine. And he says later he was young, verse 20, that he had great belongings, or he's rich, verse 22. Mark includes a little more information by saying this fellow came running to Jesus and actually knelt before Jesus in deference, addressing him as good teacher, which uh, I looked up that phrase, that does not have any precedence. They didn't call rabbis good rabbis. This is a, a term, obviously, he felt needed to be reserved for Jesus. He really esteemed Jesus. This may indicate that this man was a very devout Jew, someone who respected God and the man of God. Luke includes the idea that he was a man of some authority in the community. Luke always is a little more specific than the other gospel writers. He calls him archon or ruler, some kind of authority in the community. So this is a guy that we all wish we were, right? He's devout. He's God-fearing. Loves God, shows great deference to Jesus, even in some sense has a worshipful attitude, kneels before Jesus. It's possible that given the fact that this is in Israel, uh, that word archon, leader or ruler, it likely applied to the fact that he was a religious ruler, probably an elder in the synagogue, even as a young man. That means a lot of people look up to him, even though he was young. Again, it's something that we'd all like to be. If you're over 40, you'd like to be young. You'd like to be, have the money, that the means that you need to get by in life, maybe even a little extra. You'd like to be a leader. You'd like to be someone who's spiritual, who's godly, who perhaps is looked up to, not just because of your, your temporal or physical success, but because you're a spiritual person. You're a godly man or woman. That's who this man was. But as we will see today, this man, like so many people all across the world, is a fool. He's a fool because he comes in contact with none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ, but stops short of true childlike humility and surrender. Instead of humbling himself with total surrender, he puts forth his good deeds, hoping that perhaps there's one other thing that he could do to merit eternal life. He's in direct contact with Jesus, who says entering the kingdom is entering as a child. And this man is a direct opposite with whom Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is filled up with. So let's read this. We've studied the first part, verses 13 to 15, last time. If you weren't here, please go back to last week, watch or listen to the message last week. That's really the first point of a two-Sunday sermon over this passage. This time we're focusing on 16 to 22, which is a sad story of the rich young fool who, like most humans, wants to enter the kingdom on his own terms. All right, let's read this. I'll read aloud. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 13 of Matthew 19. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belong the kingdom of heaven. He laid his hands on them and went away. 
And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I've kept, but do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the word of God. About a thousand years ago, there was a young man who lived in the far northeastern corner of Italy in a town called Aosta, which is in the Swiss Alps, very near the St. Bernard, the great St. Bernard Pass. Yes, that's where they uh, designed and bred the St. Bernard dogs to help rescue people that are caught up in the Alps. Well, this young man looked at all the beauty of God's creation and the mountains and the valleys and the rivers and the animals that lived there, and he read his Bible, and he fell in love with the Creator God of Scripture. He looked around, looked at Scripture, looked at creation, and he eventually became captivated with the story of Jesus, the, the gospel message. The result was, some point in his teens, he was saved. He had a conversion experience. And he wanted to follow Christ. He wanted to surrender everything and follow Christ even into ministry. Well, this was problematic because his father would not let him go off to seminary. They were a noble family, and the sons of noblemen were to follow in their father's footsteps and maintain the wealth and the power of the nobleman, and he did not want his son going off to become a monk and going into seminary. However, in time, the young man, talking with his father, pleading with his father, eventually led his own father to Christ. His father repented and then was overjoyed to send his, his son off and sign off for him to go become a monk and eventually a priest, a pastor. So the young man went off to seminary, and that day would have been a monastery, He became a monk, then a priest, began to write and preach and teach, and these writings were copied over and over again. Eventually, they made their way to England. Before he knew it, some of the church leaders in England asked him to come over and pastor a church in England, and his ministry was so prosperous there in England that he eventually became the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the the leader of the churches in all of England. Well, maybe you've heard of this man. His name is Anselm. Anselm became one of the great apologists and defenders of the faith. He wrote all kinds of things from in his time as a leader and as a church. He, he, considered, he is considered the greatest pastor theologian between Augustine and uh, Aquinas, who came a little bit later. It all started when he literally gave up everything to follow after Christ. He gave up his wealth. He gave up his nobility. He gave up future authority and power. He gave up, gave up all the attending physical blessings that would come with that. Probably the hardest thing he gave up was living in the Swiss Alps. He gave it all up to live in rainy England and minister the gospel to people there. Anselm is, of course, the opposite of the rich young fool. 
this man, instead of being humbled and broken by the message of the gospel, by an encounter with Jesus, by the call of surrender, this unnamed rich fool came to Jesus hoping he could gain eternal life on his own terms. He came to Jesus hoping that he had enough goodness within himself to merit eternal life. This is the opposite of Anselm. And it's the opposite of entering the kingdom as a child. It's the opposite of any truly born-again Christian. No deeds, no credentials, no rituals can ever atone for your sin, sparing you God's judgment. No amount of law-keeping will make you good enough to get into heaven. You need someone else's righteousness to be imputed upon you, credited to your account. No amount of wealth or position will fill you with the hope that the Spirit can the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so what you and I and everyone who is to be saved, what you and I need to happen to us is to be born again by the Spirit who will cause us in our hearts a faith in Jesus Christ. Only then will you have faith like a child, a faith like Anselm, a faith of any true Christian. Now, that was my first point last week, sort of looking at the whole of Scripture. What does it mean to come to Christ as a child? And we read those first few verses, 13 to 15, and and Jesus talks about, he uses this, again, this illustration he's used before, the child basically sitting on his lap, and he uses that to to demonstrate a truth about the kingdom, that you don't get to the kingdom by, by coming to God and forwarding all your credentials and your rituals and your good works. You come to him with complete and utter dependence on Jesus Christ. And so that was point number one, totally depend on Christ. How do you get eternal life? How are you saved? Totally depend on Christ. You depend on the work and person of Christ. We saw that as depending on His atonement that He pays for your sin on the cross. The imputation of His righteousness upon you, that that He credits His righteousness to you when you have faith. You depend on the life of Christ, the the words and the actions of Christ to inform your own life. You build your life based upon the truths of Scripture. You depend on the resurrection of Christ and the future hope we have in Christ. You build your life, not in hope in your riches or your future as far as what's happening here on earth. You build your future, you build your hope on Jesus Christ and the fact that He will make you new and He will one day return. You depend on the Spirit of Christ to work all these things in your heart. You hope and believe that the Spirit does what you cannot even know to your heart. So how is a person saved? How do you enter the kingdom? You come to Christ totally dependent You depend on His work, His life, His resurrection, and His Spirit. Are you willing to do that? The Spirit has made you ready and willing. If you've been feeling that nudge, that tug to surrender all and to come to Christ as a child, come to Him right now. Trust in Christ. Repent. Have faith in Christ. Believe in Him. And friend, you will be saved. You will be saved. If you refused this invitation... You will join the ranks of the rich young fool. Well, that's our story. Unfortunately, today we have to study the the bad part, the negative negative part, the opposite of coming to Christ as a child, and that is the story of the rich young fool. This man, the rich young fool, this story teaches us a couple more things about coming to Christ. Two things, really, it will be the concluding part of our sermon I started last week. So, number two, reject ideas of saving merit. Reject ideas of saving merit. Look there at verse 16. 
And behold, a man came to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So in his mind, like most people in the world, he firmly believed that there was something he could do to gain eternal life, to get himself into heaven. And more specifically, he wanted into the messianic kingdom. Now, just to explain this a little bit, the Jews believed in the Messiah, right? They believed the Messiah was coming. Of course, Jews today who reject Jesus, they still believe the Messiah will one day come. And they, they believed that back in Jesus' day. They believed one day the Messiah would come. However, they ignored all the hints of the Old Testament that talked about the Messiah coming to suffer, the, the suffering servant songs that we've been learning in our uh, time in Bible study in Isaiah. They ignored those conveniently and In their minds, they had a Messiah who would come and set up a physical kingdom, dominate the earth, bring Israel to its its past glory, and bring it even beyond that glory to dominate the earth. And and this man had won in that kingdom. And that that kingdom, by the way, was an eternal kingdom, and the Jews believed that. And so this man comes wanting into that eternal kingdom, therefore wanting eternal life in that kingdom. He wanted to be on the right side of history. He wants to be on the right side of the future. And so he comes to Jesus, he believes rightly that Jesus has the keys to the kingdom. Jesus is the one who would, can grant people interest into that kingdom. And he, he comes to Jesus, he falls on his knee, and essentially worshiping Jesus, asking him what he has to do to get eternal life. Surely, he thought, there is some good deed I can do to merit eternal life. Now listen carefully, the rich young fool believed Jesus to be the Messiah. He believed that Jesus was the one who could get him into the kingdom. He had great reverence for Jesus. He came to Christ asking what he must do to enter the kingdom. So far, so good, right? If you've ever tried to evangelize anyone, you know that you spend a lot of time just trying to get them to this point. Maybe most of our time, just to get someone to get to the point where they're desperate enough to say, I need to be in the kingdom. I need eternal life, and I don't have it. And realize that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the one. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's the one that will get me in. I mean, we work really hard to get people to this point. But may I suggest, sometimes we work so hard to get them to this point, we forget the rest of the gospel. And we say, all right, you're there? Now pray this prayer. But notice that Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus, by our standards, probably is one of the worst evangelists we could imagine. You want the kingdom? Repeat after me. Dear Lord, dear Lord. I know what's there. I know what's there. He doesn't do that. Jesus engages with him and finds out that this man is not genuinely worshipful of Christ. He does not genuinely want to have faith and repent. Jesus knows this man's heart. Jesus knows this man is the opposite of entering as a child. He knows that this man's pride would prevent him from having eternal life, from getting into the kingdom. And this man becomes a demonstration, really a a sad parable of all fools who reject Jesus Christ. You know, the rich young fool, he, he makes some massive presumptions. His presumption, I believe, is is common to man. I, I think the reason this story is in, is in three of our Gospels is because this is such a common reality. So many people, rich, poor, young, old, ruler, not a ruler, think that they can get to God in this way. They presume 
that their theology is right about getting into the kingdom, that they can do some good thing. Well, there's a couple of things wrong. I, I, want, I want to note these things. Perhaps you want to write these down. I didn't put them on the screen for you, but maybe you want to write these down. One, he failed to see he could never be good enough to save himself. This man failed to understand that he could never be good enough to save himself. Look at verse 17, and he, Jesus, said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, just to give you a little history, Jesus had made a, uh, God had made a covenant with the people of Israel, right? There's this covenant with the people of Israel, a covenant like any covenant of that age. It would be like a treaty, and it had a, a document, and that covenant, that do- covenant document was etched in stone, and it was carried around in the Ark of the Covenant. What was that? That was the Ten Commandments. All of the Mosaic law sort of flows from those Ten Commandments, the way the people of Israel would organize themselves and obey the law that God had given. If they failed, God would curse them. If they obeyed, God would bless them. Bless them. And if you read the Old Testament, you know that there were times, yes, that the people generally obeyed the law of God, but most of the time... They failed. They did not obey the law of God. In the days of Jesus, the people of Israel, including Jesus himself, were under that Mosaic law. They were to keep that Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments and all that flowed from. So everyone knew what these commandments were. They probably uh, memorized them. They probably knew them by number and could name them. And it's these commandments to which Jesus is drawing attention there in verse 17. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. What's shocking, at least in my mind, especially after we've just talked about entering as a child with no credentials, claiming no merit, entering with humility, what stands out in my mind is the rich young fool's response. He doesn't say, keep the commandments. I could never do that. I've failed multiple times today. I probably failed just in the moment standing before you, Lord. I'm a, I'm a failure when it comes to commandments. I fail in every way when it comes to the commandments. I've, I've, I've committed crimes against your word. I failed to obey every single one of your commandments. Lord, I'm a failure. There's no way I can enter the kingdom if that's what's necessary. Now, that's not what he says. There's no humility there. Rather, this man joins the rest of humanity and so many people even today by thinking that maybe he's good enough. So what does he say? Which ones? Maybe. Maybe I can get in. Just just list the ones I'm supposed to obey. Maybe you list the ones and I feel like I'm pretty good at those ones. Maybe I can do this, especially if you sort of leave out the harder commandments. I'm pretty good. As I, as I think, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't done anything real bad. You know, I've never committed adultery. Pretty faithful. I'm not, not perfect, but I think I'm good enough. I, I think this conversation flow is just brilliant, not just in, in what happened there and Jesus sort of orchestrating this whole thing and God's providence orchestrating this whole thing, but, but also just the way that the, the, the gospel writers put it here. There's this beautiful flow that, that again, I think represents the, the largest part of humanity. This is what people think, don't they? I'm no Hitler. 
I'm good enough, right? I mean, I've looked at the commandments before. I generally obey these things. As long as I don't have to talk to Ray Comfort, I feel pretty good about myself. Those of you who ever watched Ray Comfort evangelize, you know what I'm talking about. I deserve heaven because I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm pretty good. I've sinned, but not much. Not enough to deserve hell. Overall, I'm pretty good. This man, like so many people before him and so many people since him, presumes that he's good enough to make it into heaven. I believe Jesus is the Messiah. I believe, I, I really believe I'm pretty good. I give, I attend, I do good deeds. Generally faithful to my wife, my kids. They know I'm not perfect, but they wouldn't say I'm a bad father. That reminds me of a, a Latin saying. I won't try to repeat, but there's a Latin saying in the Middle Ages from the Catholic Church. It's roughly translated this. Surely God will not deny grace from those who do what's in their hearts. Sounds like a Disney movie. Just work really hard. Surely God will let you in. Surely you're good enough to make it to heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a lie from the pit of hell. It is absolutely false. Psalm 14, Romans 3, quoting that, there are none who are good. This is not saying that the human race can do no external surface morals, but in terms of morals that save a soul, nobody can do good. All fall short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that, yes, even very evil people can, can have some sort of moral code and accomplish moral things. But these are meaningless when it comes to salvation. Our morals are never enough to merit eternal life. Our morals fall short of the glory of God. This man's view of himself as own righteousness was at its core. It was prideful. It was arrogant. It was definitely not like a child who, who understood intrinsically. He was broken. He was a failure. He had no credentials. This man presumed he was good enough. Along those same lines, another presumption he had is he failed to see, another failure he had in his presumption is that he failed to see that his good deeds, his good deeds were always tainted with sin. He asked Jesus, which ones? Again, maybe he's hoping that Jesus will list the ones that he feels good about. And Jesus does indeed give him the, sort of the easy side of the Ten Commandments. You have the side that is what you do in respect to God, and then the other side, which he lists, is what you do in respect to other people. And he probably felt good about his resume. He probably, you know, probably thought to himself, you ask 100 people, and all 100 will tell you how good I am. Verse 18, halfway through, Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, this is astonishing, the pride, all these I have kept. And that's some arrogance. And yet I think that's the default position of most people. Not perfect, but I've generally kept all these. I'm a pretty good person. What do I still lack? In his pompous presumption, this man fails to see that even his good deeds fall short. The Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, that our righteousness is as polluted rags. 
that without Christ we walk in darkness, that we produce nothing but sin. Again, sure, we can produce some sort of human morals that we can trade on in this world, but those deeds are, are worthless when it comes to saving your soul. I've used the illustration before, but it's like monopoly money. Yeah, yeah, it's good for the game of monopoly, but go out and try to deposit that money into a bank. They'll laugh at you. They'll say to you, depart from me. Your money's no good here. You come to God and you ferret before him all the things you think you've done good. What does he say? Depart from me. I never knew you. They're worthless. It's a joke. Those deeds that you do are not motivated by the Spirit, and therefore they are polluted with self-serving, selfish, sinful desires. You may not even sense those things. You're, you're self-deceived. You think you're good. You think you're doing good things. You pat yourself on the back. But those things, if not motivated by the Spirit, they're ultimately sin. Especially if then you pat yourself on the back and think that they are righteousness that will get you into heaven. Not only did this man lack the humility to see that he could never be good enough, he lacked the humility to agree with the Bible that whatever good he could produce without God was stained and polluted with sin. You know, I got to thinking as I was studying this week, there's, there's a number of presumptuous man-centered theories of salvation, I think, that are related to what this man holds here. One theory, you might call, the, call it the good enough theory or the scale theory of salvation. You've heard this before. Well, I think God is up in heaven. He has this great scale, and on one side of the scale, he, he puts the bad things I do, and on the other side of the scale, he puts the good things I do, and I just believe that my good will outweigh my bad. You heard that? People think that they can produce some level of morals to get to heaven. But in terms of salvation, as I just said, those things are all stained with sin, and therefore they all should be on the one side of the scale that is marked sin. Second problem with that theory is that nowhere in the Bible do you find this idea of good outweighing bad, and therefore God just sort of squeaking a few people in just because they were just quite good enough to make it in, and those who were not quite good enough to make it in. This is why we need someone else's righteousness to cover us. We're nothing but bad without Christ. There's also another theory, I think you kind of hear it in the words of this, this man, this rich young fool, what you might want to call the ritual theory. This, of course, is held by the Catholic Church, and not just the Catholic Church, but it exists in all religions and all denominations, even in, you find it in Protestant life. Basically, the idea is that if you go through some ritual, you're in. If you go through some sort of mystical, super spiritual thing, well, you don't have to worry about it eternity. You did it. You were sprinkled, you were dunked, you became a member, you did this, you did that. You're in. The problem with that theory is that, again, not only does the Bible not teach it, but also you're saying, again, a singular act of yourself saves you. You can almost hear this in the, in the words of the rich young fool. What good deed must I do? It's, a, it's like in his thought, maybe, maybe Jesus might have some ritual or some kind of cleansing I've heard he baptizes. Maybe I ought to be baptized. Maybe he's going to tell me, do this, and you're in. Do this ritual, you're in. A lot of people hold this idea. This causes people to rely on rituals, not Christ, to rely on mysticism, not Christ, to rely on the church, not Christ, 
to rely on the priest, yes, the pastors, and not Christ. There's also what you might call the ethnic or nearness theory of salvation. This theory promotes the idea that if you're simply around the things of God, the Jews would have connected this to their their Jewishness ethnically. We don't really think in those terms that much anymore in terms of salvation, but but maybe we think in terms of just nearness. I'm around God. I affirm these things. I go to church a lot. I've given. I've done this. I've did this. You know, I just really feel uh, uh, positive about Jesus. I, I feel warm when I go to church and am encouraged. I walk away. I, I get stuff out of the sermons, and surely that's enough to get me in. These people presume they don't really have to know and believe the gospel. They don't really have to totally depend on Christ like we talked about last time, depending on His atonement, depending on the imputation of sin, depending on the hope, depending on the Spirit of Christ. So they don't really pursue these things, and they're, and they're, in reality, if you look at their lives, they're not in pursuit of these truths and the doctrine of Scripture and, and the fullness of the Spirit. They're not in pursuit of these things. They live their life the way they want, but they have this little warm, affirmational feeling about Christ, this little place in their life for God and Jesus, and, and they feel like because they're close enough to these things, they're going to make it. Now, all three of these false theories, and you could probably come up with some more theories, I think are evident in this man's arrogance. This man's pride, his inability to see that there's no good deed he can do to gain eternal life. What this man needed to do is to renounce any idea of saving merit. He needed to beat his chest and cry for God's mercy. He needed to be broken for his sin. Ask for faith in Christ to be increased Instead, he parades his good deeds before Jesus. This man needed to reject all ideas of saving merit. What's our application? How do you enter the kingdom? How do you have eternal life? Well, you totally depend on Jesus, which includes rejecting any idea of saving merit. Now, I believe you could say, use one word to sum up those two ideas, and it's the word faith. You don't have faith in your stuff, your works, your deeds. You have faith in Christ. You depend on Christ. True faith has no trust in self, no trust in ritual. It's a faith that recognizes that even that faith is a gift of God's grace. It's a faith that cries out for mercy. It's a faith that says, I believe, help me in my unbelief. It's genuine, total surrender of any idea that Your merit, your good deeds will get you to heaven and you totally depend upon Jesus. That's faith. And that's really what these first two points in our outline articulate. Our need is for true faith. Well, the third point in this message could be summed up in a word, and that's the word repentance. Repentance really is the outflow of true faith. Look what Jesus does here. He takes the man to the idea of repentance. He shows this man that he is indeed not good and ultimately not someone who worships God, but someone who worships his wealth. In other words, Jesus shows this man his idols. So point three, if you're taking notes, number three, repent, which essentially means to destroy all idols which prevent you from faith. All idols prevent you from faith. 
Verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I think I have the proper grammar for this point. Any idol, all idols in your life prevent you from faith. By idol, I don't mean little stone image, though I I suspect it could mean that, but it's anything that prevents you from obedience to Christ, anything that prevents your total dependence and trust and pursuit of Jesus Christ. These are your idols. And the one who has true faith in Christ sets out on a mission to destroy the idols in his life. He's constantly on a hunt. Yes, he begins at salvation, and there's this repentance, this commitment to the the life of repentance, but the rest of his life, until he's glorified or until God comes back, Jesus comes back, he takes on this lifelong mission of idol destruction. Why? Because he desires to have faith in Christ. I've said this many times from this pulpit. The problem with today's Christianity, today's evangelism, is that it truncates the message of Jesus. Jesus' messages, as you read the New Testament, Jesus' messages were summed up with the words, repent and believe. Jesus takes this man to faith, believe, and demonstrates his lack of repentance. Jesus did not talk to this man about how to find purpose, how to find blessing, how to be healed. No, he starts without with the message of how to have genuine faith, and that includes repentance. It includes identifying your sin, your idols, acknowledging them, confessing them, and taking on this mission to destroy all idols in your life. Today's evangelism does everything it can to avoid the themes of sin, of repentance, even though those were the things that summed up so much of Jesus' preaching. Today's Messages, you hear them Sunday after Sunday on the television. Often it's all about feeling loved. It's all about not being judged. It's all about finding your purpose. It totally avoids what Jesus says here. Jesus locks into this man's sin. He shows this man his idols, calls upon him to smash those idols and follow Christ. Listen, if you avoid ideas of sin and repentance, there's, there's no place for what we talked about last week in terms of atonement or imputation or dependence on the Spirit, hoping in Christ. The person never needs, sees the, his need for those things. You're left with a gospel that's not telling the whole, whole truth, and it's not a gospel at all. A truncated gospel leads to a truncated faith, which is not faith at all. And I'm afraid our, afraid our churches are filled with people who think they have faith, but it's the illusion of faith. It's a, a false faith, a truncated faith that requires no repentance, no change, no dealing with sin, no devotion to Christ, no building your life on the truth of, Christ, of God's Word. These false faiths, it's, a, it's just a feeling, a, a fleeting feeling of affirmation and little else. Faith, true faith relentlessly drives a person to repentance. This man failed the very first and most important commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus tracks straight to this man's failure and calls upon him to repent of that sin and follow him. This young ruler is a fool. And he walks away sadly because he understands the message now. He knows the diagnosis that Jesus has made of his heart, 
but doesn't want to give up his stuff. Jesus says, if you, you will be perfect, the word perfect there deals with salvation. If you want to complete the picture, if you want to be saved, it's not just about having surface morality. It's acknowledging your failure before a holy God. It's then doing everything you can to, to get that sin that causes that failure. I mean, what was the source of his pride? His success. Jesus says, get rid of that. That's what's causing the pride of your life. That's what's keeping you from coming to me as a child. So I'm showing you how to get rid of that stuff. This man's idol was his wealth. Jesus says, sell it all, give it to the poor, follow me. Now, does Jesus ask that same exact thing of everybody? Well, the answer is yes and no. We should all be willing to give our all to Jesus Christ. But no, because not all of us have the same gods, the same idols as this man. For you, it may be family. For you, it may be belongings. For you, it may be position or job or promotions. Though our sins are different, Jesus constantly and consistently tells his people the same truth. Faith is actualized in repentance. You give up these idols. In uh, Luke chapter 9, we have a perfect example of this, how Jesus would go after people's idols. When he was evangelizing people, he would go after their idols. In Luke chapter 9, the very end of the chapter, Jesus is approached by three different men who want eternal life. They want to be his disciples. They want to follow him. They want to be in the kingdom. And again, instead of saying, well, I've got a sinner's prayer that if you repeat, you're in the kingdom. Instead of saying that, Jesus gave these men barriers so that they would have to destroy their idols. He goes right to their hearts. For one guy, it was the comfort of his house and his living. Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, follow me. And stop worshiping the fact that you have a nice house and a nice place to lay your head. You follow me. You destroy the comfort of your home and you come after me. Another guy came up and wanted to follow. He said, essentially, let me wait until my parents die. Let's just let this phase of life pass. At the end of that phase of life, when they're gone, I have my inheritance, then I'll come follow you. Have you heard people give that same excuse? Well, not right now. Maybe later on in life. Maybe a few years down the road. When I'm finished with this phase, then I'll become a Christian. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their dead, meaning spiritually dead people are consumed with the physical dying world. Go on. If that's what you want to do, you're consumed. You worship the things of this world. They're consumed with the things of this world. Their third guy walks up and says, I want to follow you, but let me go back. I want to have a farewell party with my family and friends. Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. When you truly encounter Jesus, he puts his finger on the nerve of your existence, the gods that you worship, and he tells you, destroy these idols and follow me. Listen, it's not faith to believe in someone who promises you'll have your best life now. It's not faith to follow a Jesus who simply helps you find some sort of purpose. It's not faith to follow a Jesus who says you'll never be sick, you'll always be healed. It's not faith to follow a Jesus who promises you wealth. All those are a false faith. Jesus is just a a means for getting what you want. Continue to worship your very idol. It's faith when you abandon all these things. It's a faith when you abandon your self-righteousness and you depend totally on the person and work of Jesus Christ 
and you're willing to give up everything to follow him. It's faith. It's true faith when you begin that journey of greater faith and the journey of greater repentance. And the great news is if you, if you believe these truths, even if you don't fully understand them about Jesus and his person, his work, the atonement and imputation, even if you just barely can grasp onto those truths, and, and if you want to have faith in Christ because of this and you want to turn away from your idols, God will save you. God will save you. If you believe and repent today, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we do know that there are those in this room that need to do that very thing. They need to destroy those idols and stop coming to Jesus on their own terms, trying to justify themselves before God and depend totally on Jesus And perhaps they can identify in their own hearts, maybe God, you're doing that through your spirit, you're doing that for them. You're bringing to their mind their sin, the things that they worship. And Lord, I pray that they would desire, even though they can't be perfect, even though they know they're going to be a failure, I pray that you'd give them the desire to turn away from that sin, turn away from those idols. Lord, call upon them in a saving way today. All of us, Lord, we need this message, this clarity of the gospel and what is genuine faith. Lord, it helps us in terms of what we ingest as far as uh, truth, whether it comes from preachers or books or, or Christian slogans or whatever, Lord. We pray that we would filter these things through the truth of Scripture. I pray that we would not abandon these things. Lord, we heard the passage earlier about when Peter and Barnabas and others abandoned those things and began to fall into a false gospel. Lord, even Christians, even apostles can do that. So, Lord, we turn away from that, and we want to follow the true gospel. Help us to love you in this way. Help us to worship you for this. And I pray, Lord, this becomes a way of life for us, again, reminding us that we have dedicated our lives to trusting in Christ, to growing our faith in Him, to growing our understanding of Him, and to turning away from our sin. Help us do this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.